0: In this lecture, Dr. Steve Doris from the University of Bath will describe how cataloging our DNA blueprints is revealing the evolution of human traits. Okay, my name is Steve Doris. Uh, I'm at the uh, University of Bath. And so today I'm going to be talking about adaptation in the descent of humans. and uh, I'm going to start as a starting point, I'm going to describe the Human Genome project a bit and discuss how it's being used as a tool to understand human adaptation. So, uh, I'm an evolutionary geneticist, my background is in human genetics and in comparative primate genomics, and uh, so in constructing this talk, I've sort of tried to keep a happy medium between technical information, but also trying to make it accessible to everybody who's here. I'm certain there's some non-scientists here, and I'm certain there are a lot of people who aren't biologists, but just bear with me, at times I'm going to either go into too much detail or not enough, but uh, hopefully at the end we'll we'll strike a a happy balance So, as an evolutionary geneticist, uh, we are particularly interested in understanding evolution at the genotypic level. So, the genotype being the genetic information that an organism has, and we're interested in how evolution at the genetic level actually translates into the phenotype, and the phenotype being the actual physical manifestation of the information that is actually encoded by, by DNA, the genetic information. Now, so a phenotype can be a variety of things and can be thought about on different levels. It can be the physical manifestation in terms of the morphology of an organism. It could be the physiology of an organism, it could even extend it to behavior. So but obviously, as an evolutionary geneticist, we are interested in the human genotype, but it's impossible to study the human genotype per se, in an evolutionary perspective without having something to compare it to. So we're going to talk about a little bit about the Human Genome Project, but also going to talk about, The completion of the chimpanzee and the macaque genome project, which are really giving us kind of the powerful empirical tools to understand genotypic evolution in the recent descent of human beings. So, so first, a little bit about the human genome project. Now, unfortunately, I have a feeling that this is going to end up either being too technical for some or not technical enough for others. But I think it'd be a disservice to the audience as a whole to not actually describe what the human genome is, or what a genome is uh, for any organism. So a genome basically is the full complement of genetic information within a given organism. So it's, it's ultimately the full complement of its DNA, which includes all of the information that's required for development, for reproduction, for adult functioning of a given organism. So the human genome, which was completed officially, I believe, in 2001, is comprised of approximately three billion or three and a half billion nucleotides or base pairs. So now this is where I have to digress immediately and explain, well, what is DNA and what is a base pair or a nucleotide for those of you who don't know? And I'll just try to do this by analogy. So if there are three billion nucleotides, imagine that, uh, uh, that basically each human chromosome is nothing more than a long chain made up of links that are all identical. But attached to each of those links is additional information, a different uh, additional chemical structure and there can be one of four chemical structures attached to each link in a given chain. So effectively, each chromosome in the human genome is just one linear chain with one of four different types of chemical additions to it, which effectively encode the information that's necessary for a given organism. So um, within, this, uh, within the human genome, there are approximately 25,000 gene- genes. That's a number the number of genes is, is just an estimate. and it's being refined based on empirical information all the time. And actually, the number is actually decreasing as, as the genome is studied uh, more intensively. So to put that in perspective, uh, the human genome is, is a very powerful tool, but it, it is primarily so because we have points of comparison to other mammalian organisms and to other non-mammalian organisms. So to date, uh, some of the notable mammalian genomes that are completed are the mouse the rat, the dog, the cow, and the chimpanzee and the macaque, and obviously the chimpanzee and the macaque are of great relevance in terms of understanding human, recent human evolution. So, in addition to those mammalian genomes that are already completed, there are currently about 43 mammalian genome projects ongoing. So, just to give you an idea of the amount of data that's actually being created, and that's just within mammalian taxa, and obviously there are many more genomes that have been completed in other organisms and that are ongoing right now. So, another, another uh, uh, stepping aside to just go over some basics. So, what is a gene? If there are 25,000 genes in the human genome, well, what really is a gene? Well, in this diagram, you can see that the genome is comprised of a set of chromosomes. If you look at each individual chromosome, you can break it down once again into sort of a linear molecule. And then within that, there are actually discrete entities that, in, that, that include the information required uh, for a gene. And so, what is the gene? So, the gene itself is just the information, effectively. That information is, is this discrete unit is in fact translated into what's called messenger RNA and it's that molecule which is actually the sort of the template or the guide for the production of proteins. So what are proteins? Proteins are actually the functional molecules that are responsible for all the sort of processes that are required both for the development and the functioning of of an adult organism. So proteins can be enzymatic molecules, they can be metabolic proteins, they can be structural just about all the working processes in a given cell, in any given organism, are conducted by, by proteins, although that's not an absolute rule. Um, so that's just, so when I talk about the evolution of genes and the evolution of humans, you have an idea that I'm talking about some sort of discrete entity that has a, has a functional responsibility, and that we know where it is within the human genome because of the fact that the human genome has now, in fact, been completely sequenced, okay? So the chimpanzee genome, so this was completed a couple of years ago and obviously made a big stir because chimpanzees are our closest relatives. Uh, humans and chimpanzees diverged about 4 to 5 million years ago. Uh, the, human ch- the, the chimpanzee is 99% identical to humans, and I will show you actually some alignments of gene sequences. Because I feel like this number not where 99 or 99.1% identical to chimpanzees is sort of presented in the press, in the common press, often. But I feel like if people don't actually actually see what the gene sequences look like, that, that might actually not have a real tangible meaning to some people. So despite the fact that we have uh, 99% identity between the human and chimpanzee genome, because of the absolute size of the genome, that in fact means that there are a lot of divergent nucleotides between the two. So altogether, one can extrapolate to say that maybe there are about, there are about 30 million nucleotides or base pairs that are different between us and chimpanzees. So just some other interesting statistics. 29% of genes uh, are identical uh, between the chimpanzee and the human genome. And on average, if you compare the analogous or the corresponding gene in a human to a chimpanzee, on average there are two, two differences within the proteins that those, that those genes encode, and that uh, it generally works out to approximately one change, one evolutionary change, on the lineage leading to humans since the speciation event and one chimpanzee since the speciation event. <coughs> <laughs> Sorry, this slide was actually supposed to precede the last one but nonetheless, everybody knows that we're closely related to chimpanzees but let me just put our relatives into slightly a slightly bigger picture so who are we related to? This is just an oversimplified version of the primate phylogeny I, I couldn't help but ch- choose George's question and so I'm upset about that uh, As I said, humans and chimpanzees were, were, close, were the closest relatives having diverged about 4 to 5 million years ago after that, gorillas are our next closest relatives, having diverged just slightly before that, approximately 6 million years ago. After that, you have, uh, you have the orangutan, which diverged from uh, the remainder of the great apes approximately 14 million years ago. And then we have, uh, you have old world monkeys, which diverged about 20 to 25 million years ago. Obviously the chimpanzee genome has a lot of utility in terms of doing a comparative analysis of the human and chimpanzee genome, because it allows us to place changes that are specific to the human lineage. So what are the changes that happen as <laughs> we diverge from our most closest relative? Now, uh, I'm not going to go into all the reasons that uh, the macaque genome was also targeted by funding agencies, but the old-world monkey, and in this case the macaque, has proven to be useful for a variety of reasons and was therefore chosen to be to be one of the other first primate genomes to be sequenced. One is it's not a great ape, and it's divergence because of the fact that it's actually diverged far enough from humans. It gives us kind of a complementary perspective to the chimpanzee genome comparison, if that makes sense. So you have one that's very close, that's very very telling or very informative in terms of <coughs> very specific aspects of human biology, but then you have one that's more divergent, that gives you sort of a broader evolutionary perspective, or a perspective over a larger evolutionary timescale about primate evolution in human biology. One of the other reasons, which may not surprise some of you, but may also at the same time bother some of you is that the macaque actually is uh is is actually a genetic model organism and is being used for transgenics in some countries in the world so people have made green fluorescent macaques macaques are are are, are used for a lot of human medical research and people are doing transgenics that is gene knockings and knockouts so whether we like it or not or whether we accept it or not whereas the mouse has traditionally been thought of as the ideal lab organism, mammalian lab organism, it is true that in some places now there are actually macaque facilities where people are doing macaque genetics and using them as an experimental organism. So whether we agree with that or not, it is a reality of the science, and hence the genome project in the macaque is very useful for those reasons. So the macaque genome, just a few interesting statistics. As I said about 25 million years ago, since the divergence of of Old World monkeys with the lineage that leads to the remainder of the great apes, it's about 93 percent identical to the human genome. So an average protein uh, is is different differs from humans by about 12 amino acids. I mean that's not necessarily the most meaningful statistics because proteins vary in length, but that is the average. So once again, there's a bit more information, especially especially from a statistical standpoint, because you have a greater period of evolutionary time. So there's been more divergence, both functionally and just, just at, the, at the molecular level, at the level of DNA between humans and macaques. And unlike the chimpanzee, where you do find a large percentage of genes that are absolutely identical to the human ortholog, or well, I'll just use the term, the term homolog for now since that's a little less technical, oh, but only 11% of the proteins encoded by the macaque genome are, are completely identical to, to those proteins, to the analogous or the homologous proteins within the human genome. So this, unfortunately, now I realize none of you are going to be able to see this back there. But like I said before, this sort of, well, we're 99% identical to our closest relative chimpanzees. I, I just didn't know where. I always feel like people may not really have a good grasp on what that really means. So I actually just decided to cut and paste out some gene alignments from a study that's actually ongoing in, in my own research right now. And now I realize you won't be able to see this at all. But there's about 150 base pair in these two alignments. But anywhere that you see that it's red, so the top sequence the top sequence in each of these alignments is the human sequence then the chimpanzee sequence then the macaque sequence. Any place where it's red means there's no difference between any of the three, any of the three sequences. So I just was hoping that this might give you a bit more a bit more of a, of a sense of really what we're talking about when we say that there's this sort of level of, of identity between the, between the two genomes. And in fact, in, I think it's in the second sequence, in the second sequence there, in this particular region that I've chosen, there are no differences whatsoever between the human and the chimpanzee sequence. So, so that's sort of what we mean when we talk about the genomes being so highly similar. Of course, that only tells half the story because there are other types of larger structural differences, insertions, deletions, rearrangements, and, uh, but I'm not going to talk about those today in, in any detail. So also, once again, just so that people get an idea of what we mean when we're talking about understanding, for instance, human-specific evolutionary changes, I think just from an operational standpoint, it helps to go through this little exercise just to, under the kind of simplest model to understand what we really do on a day-to-day basis. If we're saying we're taking two genomes and we're comparing (coughs) them, or in this case, we're taking three genomes and we're comparing them, and we're deducing lineage-specific evolutionary changes, what does that really mean? So in this case, I've just put... But these, each three of these sequences identical, but however, if you change that base pair in the middle there, under what we would call uh, the parsimonious explanation for this, meaning the simplest explanation in terms of reconstruction, reconstructing the evolutionary change, would be to simply place that one change on the human lineage. That invokes only, only it only requires one change. You could come up with more complicated scenarios that would explain that divergence between the sequences. But this is the simplest explanation. So what we're saying, comparing the, 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 the genomes of these three taxa and saying what are changes that are specific to humans and therefore underlie human-specific biological traits, this is sort of the first step in that process, is just defining what those changes are within the genome. And similarly the logic goes on. If there's a change in that sequence, the simplest explanation for that it was a lineage-specific change on the chimpanzee lineage, and so forth. This case is not quite as simple because in reality it depends on what the outgroup sequence was if you had a fourth sequence. But you get the idea, from an operational standpoint, what it means to say we're comparing, doing comparative genomics, and we're assigning evolutionary changes to specific primate lineages. So the final component uh, that I want to just cover quickly Sequencing one individual human genome, so effectively we sequenced the human genome, but it really was just from one person, is, is only a, a small part of the story because you can, of course, use that as a tool to compare to other primates and to other species, uh, any other species, for that matter, for which you have any kind of homology. But uh, there's a lot, of, a lot of effort and resources right now being put into sequencing many human genomes across the world from worldwide populations. And with new sequencing technology, it's not going to be more than a year or two before there are thousands thousands of completed human genomes from a variety of populations worldwide. But a lot of of the power in terms of understanding (coughs) or inferring uh, the recent impact of selection during human evolution comes when one has human genetic variation information. And this is is sort of why sequencing genomes or regions of the genomes from various populations is so useful. Another reason that this is interesting, and it's already been used extensively and solved a lot of issues concerning this, is that human genetic variation across worldwide populations has answered a lot of questions about the demographic history of, of Homo sapiens, and specifically having to do with testing aspects of the out of Africa hypothesis, having to do with human human demographic expansion out of Africa. So, but I'm not going to talk about that today. That's a different aspect of, of recent human evolution that that requires a an entire different uh, talk altogether. So what I will tell you is that in the next couple sections of the talk, I'm going to talk about the signature of selection in the human genome and evidence that a region of the genome has undergone some sort of adaptive change. I'm not going to go into the methods by which we determine this. A lot of it is statistical. A lot of it is based on computational modeling. But a lot of this is done basically by comparing human genetic variants, or what we call polymorphisms, from various, various individuals, from various human populations, also using information from outgroups such as the chimpanzee and the macaque to infer selection. So for the rest of the talk I'm going to be giving you some, what I hope to be, intuitive examples of stories having to do with recent adaptation uh, during human evolution. And I'm going to be saying that there's strong, there's strong evidence for selection in this region of the genome, and, but we can talk potentially about the methods by which we determine that After the after this initial part of the talk, but I think it's potentially a bit too a bit too technical uh, for the first pass over this information. So this is actually an interesting example which I haven't talked about in previous in, in previous seminars that I've given. But I actually thought that for this sort of an audience, it would be provide a very intuitive sort of anecdotal story that would be easy for people to relate to and easy for people to draw the connection between the genetic evidence aspects of archaeological evidence having to do with how human populations behaved in in, in ancient times, or how our ancestors behaved, and also introduce you to sort of the idea of using human genetic variation to understand how humans have adapted, what evidence we have for selection in in the evolution of humans. So I'm going to talk a little bit about adaptation and evolutionary genetics of the introduction of milk uh, to diets in in, in our ancestors, and specifically the, the evolution of of uh, uh, of the ability to actually digest lactose in adults. Um, So this is not the whole picture, and we actually have a lot more information than what this diagram shows, but this just gives you an idea of the sort of variability, and I will explain it in a minute. I know you can't see it, especially in the back. But the the variability in in lactose, the ability to actually metabolize lactose, or the flip side of that is the variability in lactose intolerance across worldwide populations. Those things that those the regions of the world that are shown in green are places where there's uh, very low levels of lactose intolerance. People are able to digest lactose from milk and other dairy products as adults. Those regions that are in red, in particular this is very true in most Asian countries, Pe- the, the vast majority of people in the population as adults are unable to un- unable to metabolize lactose. So let me give you before we talk about sort of the selective history behind all this. Let's just talk a little bit about the biology of lactose intolerance. So the ability to digest lactose, which is the is the main carbohydrate that's present in milk, is is it declines after after effectively after you're an infant and you're weaned. And this is due to decreased expression of a specific gene which encodes a protein called lactase. And it's lactase which actually is able to metabolize lactose into simpler sugars that you're actually able to digest and absorb in your, into your bloodstream very easily. So some individuals, and I guess actually most, a good, good number of us in this room, uh, 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 probably maintain the ability to digest milk uh, because, because we have this lactase gene expressed at high enough levels in adulthood. I'm certain most of us put cream or milk in our tea or coffee or have milk with our cereal in the morning. So this Maybe none of us have given a lot of thought to the evolutionary significance of this sort of an evolutionary trait. And the fact is, is that the vast majority of people who are descendants of populations, which traditionally practice cattle domestication and had cattle and dairy products as part of their diet, do in fact have the ability to, to metabolize lactose. So the frequency of lactose persistence is quite high in northern Europe. It declines sort of in a clinal way as you, as you go across Europe to the, to the east and to the south. And it's very low in Asian and in some African populations. And we'll get back to, to recent findings having to do with very interesting differences amongst specific African populations with regard to this trait. So, so I talk a little bit about the frequency of the European lactase persistent genetic variant. There is, in fact, one, one change at one, one particular base pair that is involved in, in the expression of lactase in adulthood in European populations. Uh just to give a little bit of background, archaeological evidence is, suggests that, that cattle domestication first occurred somewhere in the ballpark of, of seven to 9,000 years ago, depending whether you're talking about Egypt or the, the rest of the Middle East. Um, this genetic variant, which is now prevalent or commonly prevalent at high frequencies across European populations, has been dated using a variety of genetic techniques. These are some of the techniques which I think we could talk about potentially in more detail after in, in the discussion section. But the age of this particular variant, which confers the ability for the lactase gene to be expressed at a high enough level, can be dated to approximately that time, and subsequent to that is actually obviously persisted and spread to high frequencies across European populations as people populated, as modern, modern Europeans uh, moved, moved throughout Europe. There's also strong evidence for, for selection across this loci. So population genetic evidence shows that this particular region of the, <coughs> the genome has been influenced by selection. Sometimes we use the term selective sweep to indicate that most likely this this variant which confers this ability was actually an adaptive change and therefore was driven to high levels to a high frequency in certain populations because of its adaptive because of the adaptive trait that it confers. So uh, uh, for those of you who can’t see the diagrams in, in the far back, just basically on the top, it shows the frequency of this particular genetic vari- uh, variant or polymorphism. In the UK and the. US, everybody who is of, of, of European or, or, or North European descent in both countries has a, this allele at a very high frequency and therefore can, 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 can actually metabolize lactase. Anybody who's not of European descent, either in the UK or the US, in those populations you have a very low prevalence of this allele. And therefore you have obviously a much higher level of lactose intolerance. I think that the diagram on the bottom is actually even more amazing. What it really does show is it shows this clinal, clinal shift. So basically it's, it, it's just sorting a histogram from the highest level of, of, of frequency of this variant to the lowest but if you could actually see the names of the locations, it's, it almost perfectly correlates with an access through Europe from from the northwest to the southeast, and the implication being that obviously, in in, 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 in traditionally in northern Europe and northwestern parts of Europe, that dairy products, milk, played a larger it was it was it was an important nutritional requirement and played a larger part in people's diets, not just infants when they were when they were actually breastfeeding, but in adults. So. Now, the story gets a little bit more interesting, and there's been some very interesting studies that have come out in the last year or two concerning sort of similar stories having to do with Africa and, and recent evolutionary aspects of, of, of lactase persistence. So, the situation in Africa is slightly more complicated because the fact is, is that, that cattle domestication and pastoral, pastoralism didn't actually spread to sub Saharan <laughs> Africa until more recently. Estimates are about 4,500 years ago to, to northern Kenya and somewhere on the, in the ballpark of 3,000 years ago to, to regions further south in sub-Saharan Africa. So, obviously, the actual presence of, of, of milk in, in adult diets, the actual availability of it was, is a much more a much more recent thing during uh, during the evolution of humans in Africa. Just last year... People found there's there's very strong evidence that have identified three unique lactase-persistent alleles in Africa. And these origins, the origin and the dating of these alleles is 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 it correlates very well with the spreading of of, of cattle domestication and pastoralism to sub-Saharan Africa. But, but what's particularly interesting about this is that these variants that confer lactase persistence, that confer expression of lactase in adults to an adequate level to actually metabolize lactose in the diet they're not the same places of the, as the European variant. These are completely independent. They, they influence the gene in the same way. But in African populations, there are actually three different variants, and none of them correspond to the European. And this is what we call a case of convergent evolution, where effectively you've had an evolutionary solution, or the evolution of a given trait under selection, but it's happened independently, in different lineages, in different populations, at different times, in different places. So, it's a it's a wonderful example of evolution finding a solution, albeit finding the solution using the same gene, but finding the solution through an actual slightly different mechanism in terms of conferring this lactase persistence uh, trait. So once again, there's strong genetic evidence for selection uh, on these variants, and uh, and. And it's hypothesized that there's two things to, to discuss here is that the signature for selection is actually much more intense than it is in European populations based on using, using uh, information from, from human genetic variation screens. One reason for that is because at least the origination in the sweeping or the the, the, the increase, uh, the selective increase of these alleles in these populations, it happened more recently, or at least that's, that's, our, that's our current understanding. So therefore the signature of these selective events is, is inherently going to be stronger than, than an event that happened further in the past. So you can imagine that it's left some sort of signature on the genome that slowly breaks down over time, but it's more, so it's more apparent, and that may just be because it, it was a more recent event. It's also hypothesized that in Africa that, 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 that milk played it sort of had a double, uh, uh, played two roles in terms of, of, of being beneficial. It wasn't simply as a, as a nutritional requirement, but also played an incredibly important role as, as a source of water in arid environments during during human evolution in Africa, uh, of course, whether that's the case or not, it is somewhat speculative. But it, it certainly certainly is a is a is a nice story, and I think a good example to get your head around in terms of understanding ways in which we think about human adaptation during during, and, and also in this case, in this particular case, understanding unique adaptations to specific human populations during human evolution. So as I said before, this is a very rare documented case of convergent evolution. So it's independent adaptive evolutionary events effectively solving the same problem but in slightly different ways and in in different populations. And for those of you who can't see the diagram, it basically, well you can't see it at all even up here. (laughs) Effectively you have a series of bars that are very tall and that's the allele, uh, one of these African allele variants that that results in lactase expression in in adults. All of of their very high bars are from populations that, that have traditionally depended on cattle and milk all the very, all the populations where the allele frequency is very low, are those that most of most of whom were, were hunter gatherer populations who didn't actually didn't actually keep cattle uh, domestically. So, so I, I think this is a good example. Uh, there's lots of examples now coming out in terms of understanding human evolution, but this one this one is is fairly straightforward and it sort of fits it fits a nice, it's sort of a, it's intuitive and it, it sort of makes a nice anecdotal story to, to think about human evolution working in this way. But it does bring us to something that's more serious that is probably going to be w- worth some um, time in the discussion after I finish talking. Well, natural selection adaptation, but what does that have to do with contemporary human disease? The fact is, is that genetic variants associated with various diseases are common in modern populations because they were, in fact, adaptive in our ancient ancestors. Does that, and I'll, I'll explain what I mean by that. But there are a lot of, a lot of uh, uh, aspects of our genome that were, were selected for and have changed to, to adapt to aspects of our environment that are in selective pressures that are quite frankly no longer there. Um, we still drink milk, but we don't necessarily have to, but that's not really the point. The point is that things like common complex diseases, whether they be hypertension, diabetes, obesity, asthma, these are things that have increased tremendously in their prevalence in the last 50 years. And in a way, they, represent, they may represent genetic variants that are present at high frequencies because of the fact that they conferred adaptive traits to the way we used to live, but the way we no longer live. And, and, and I think that that makes sense when you're talking about things like obesity and diabetes and hypertension, which are effectively very closely linked disorders, where well, we, our diets have changed radically. The amount we eat has changed radically. The amount of exercise has decreased radically.
1: And it's true for other
0: things, not just simply complex uh, diseases that have complex genetic natures, but it's also true for things that have very simple Mendelian uh, inher- inheritance. Things like sickle cell anemia, which confers resistance to malaria. Well, in some parts of the world, it in fact does confer resistance to malaria because there are mosquitoes and malaria around. But to the African Americans in North America, in the United States, and in, in, in Canada, having, having being a carrier of sickle cell anemia doesn't really do you any good in the absence of any malaria. So just to give you an idea that what was selected, selected for in the past, the ways in which we adapted in the past may not necessarily be best suited for the rapid changes that are occurring in the world today. So to sum that up, understanding adaptation in the, in the recent Descent of Humans it's not only interesting from an evolutionary perspective, but it's actually quite relevant to epidemiology and the understanding of serious medical conditions that are becoming more and more problematic worldwide. So many of these many of these conditions represent our maybe potentially our inability to, to evolve rapidly enough to, to the way that the modern world is changing around us. Okay, so that's, that's sort of the first two parts of the talk. And now I'm going to talk quickly and go through a, a couple of, of stories they have to do with, uh, with the evolution of, of human cognition, and this is a much more complex subject. We know much less about it, and, uh, it but however, it is, it, is a, it is a huge area of research. There are a tremendous amount of resources being put into it right now, and in the, in the starting point for all this is the human genome and using compar- doing comparative genomics. So I just, I'd just like to start this, uh, this talking about, uh, about the evolution of human cognition and brain morphology by reading a, a quote from Charles Darwin to show that this, in fact, is something that people have been thinking about for, for a long time, this dating back to 1871 in, in a publication uh, of The Descent of Man. So these faculties, and here Charles Darwin is speaking of the mental powers of higher animals, are of the utmost importance to animals in the state of nature. Therefore, the conditions are favorable for their, for their development through natural selection, The same conclusion may be extended to man. The intellect must have been all-important to him. So, although Darwin, I don't think, discussed this in great detail, it it has been a a topic in evolutionary biology, and and even he recognized that that the evolution of higher cognition must be something that has been selected for through natural selection, and it's something that people are really trying to work on from, from a technical aspect, in terms of understanding the specific molecular changes, the specific evolutionary changes at the genetic level that may underlie the development of, of the primate or the human brain and higher cognition. <clears throat> so just to quickly to go over some human traits, these are not necessarily restricted to humans alone, but they're things that are, are obviously uh, important uh, biological traits for humans. From a physical standpoint, we have increased brain size, and I'm going to talk about that from a morphological perspective. We have more complex vocal organ organs than our than our, our non non uh, non-human primate relative, relatives. We have bipedalism. From a cognitive standpoint, we, use, we do use very complex language, although by no means is language restricted to humans, and I, I wouldn't suggest that. Sophisticated tool use, once again, the keyword being sophisticated, we know that other organisms use tools at this point, but we certainly, I think it's fair to argue that we have a more sophisticated use of them and can construct more sophisticated tools. Symbolic thought, we don't really know if that's completely unique to humans, but it, it, is, it is a trait that is that defines defines humans, and emotional complexity... Uh, at least more potentially more complex emotional uh, framework than, than other orga- organisms so just quickly to go back to some sort of classical comparative brain morphology so the fact is is that the human brain is in fact very unique and has 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 undergone a lot of evolutionary changes in recent in recent evolutionary time uh, on the left on the left hand side you see actual pictures of a human brain and a chimpanzee brain and they to scale. You can see how, how much larger the human brain is. So that's a lot of evolutionary change to occur over four or five million years. On the right-hand side, you see you see skulls from various primates, human chimpanzee, orangutan, and macaque. Uh, macaque is, is the capacity for carrying a, a brain of about a, that can weigh up to about 100 grams. And the chimpanzee, that's 400 grams. And then you jump to humans, and it's about, it's about 1,300 grams. Just to, just to highlight how much we've changed. During during our recent evolution, another way of of, of another uh, metric uh, by which we can measure brain uh, brain size or brain complexity is to look at at, at neocortex surface area and scale it to body size. Uh, It's believed that a great deal of the complex neuronal connections that exist within within the primate brain have a lot to do with the, the the very complex folding on the surface on the surface of the brain and particularly in the neocortex. So as you can see, the mouse and the rat have comparable levels of neocortex surface area when scaled to body size, that jumps by about a factor of three when you look at the macaque, but then again it jumps by over a factor of three in humans. So just another way in which we can look at the complexity of the human brain, And, and it begs to ask the question, how did this, from an evolutionary developmental standpoint, how did it come about? And then thirdly, another way to look at it, this this is here mainly not only to introduce you, you can look at encephalization quotient, which is really just scaling brain size or brain weight to to body weight. But in this case, uh, it's comparing comparing (coughs) Homo sapiens' encephalization quotient to to various uh, non-extant relatives of ours going all the way back uh, to Eocene (coughs) prosimians. So I know you can't see this. Once again, I'll try to walk you through it. Um, Starting all the way back about 50 or 60 million years ago, the the encephalization quotient is, is right is right there on the diagram, and you can see that it increases. If, this is once again this is based on fossil records. You can see that it increases sort of progressively, but it's just really when comparing Homo sapiens with archaic Homo sapiens, Homo erectus, and some of our more distantly related uh, relatives that you see this incredible exponential increase in the in this brain metric. I'll just point to it quickly. It's just this final part here. So anyway, I think I've made the point that there's been a rapid evolutionary change in this this morphological aspect of humans. And the question is, what are people now doing to try to understand that from from an evolutionary development point and from the standpoint of of just genetics? So one thing people are doing is scanning the human genome. For genes that we know that influence developmental parameters having to do with brain development, and to try to identify signatures of positive selection in those genes. Well, as I've told you, given that we have complete genomes, you can look at all 20 or 25,000 genes between humans and chimpanzees and macaque, and using a variety of, of, of tools, mainly statistical tools that we use in molecular evolution, you can begin to actually pull out genes that we know have some functional role in the evolutionary development of the human brain and the development of the brain, and we can also, we can also say that they've evolved in an unusual way. And oftentimes we're, 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 we're interested specifically in evolution that's happened just on the, on, the, on the terminal lineage leading to humans. But as I showed you, a lot of evolutionary changes actually happen from the CACs to humans. So it's also true that we do try to look for unusual evolutionary characteristics or dynamics on, on all the lineages leading through the great ape phylogeny, eventually leading to the, to, the, to the terminal lineage leading to Homo sapiens. But here I've just listed a, a set of seven genes that have been identified because they're evolving... Particularly rapidly in humans, and, uh, and all of them are known when mutated to, to impact, and very severely in most cases, impact uh, brain development in humans. So I'll just go through a few of them uh, quickly. Um, ASPM and the first two, ASPM and microcephalon, both when mutated in humans lead to microcephaly, which is effectively the development of an undersized brain. So we know that this gene, and it's such, such a severe abnormality that sometimes it's in fact lethal. And certainly, in most cases, these individuals never never make it uh, to, to reproduce and pass on these alleles. So these genes are evolving rapidly, and we also know that when mutated, they, they, they are altered in such a way that the human brain doesn't develop to, to, to the proper size that it's supposed to. Um, another example is the, is the limb homeobox gene, another example where you have have a, have a type of microcephaly associated with it when mutated in humans. An interesting one is lysencephaly lis- 1, this one doesn't actually impact brain size when mutated. But in fact, you lose all of the complex folding patterns on the surface of the brain. You effectively get a smooth brain. So, so once again, this gene is evolving very rapidly. It's, it's a putative candidate for a gene that's been influenced by positive selection in, in recent primate evolution. And when it is mutated in humans, you lose what we believe to be a critical morphological characteristic of the brain that underlies complex uh, neuronal processes in the brain. Okay, and now we move on to the final story, which has to do with language, and probably the most famous gene in terms of human evolution at this point. So a little bit about the neurological basis of language. There are basically two regions in the human brain which have been, de- uh, have been believed classically to be critical substrates for, for language utilization. One of them is called the, the Broca's area, and the other one is the Warnix area. Um, just so you know... Aphasia is, is is a condition where you have the inability to produce or comprehend language uh, appropriately, and often this is either due to disease or injury, and specifically aphasia occurs when you have damage to either of these key language substrates within the brain. Um, the story is not quite as simple as that. We still know that these are critical kind of substrates for, for language utilization, but contemporary research actually indicates that these are just part of a lot, much more uh, complicated and larger complex, but nonetheless... They're critical regions of the brain in terms of of language utilization and comprehension in humans. So now we move on to the gene that's been dubbed the language gene. You could probably see that coming. Foxp2. Foxp2. I won't really go into exactly what it does from a molecular standpoint. It's not really necessary uh, in in terms of conveying this story. But Foxp2 mutations result in in an autosomal dominant communication disorder. It's a type of dyspraxia. It, It. It's a a really interesting phenotype because it involves problems with speech articulation, but it really actually is more of a deficit in many aspects of language and grammar utilization. So people who have mutations in the FOXP2 gene, they will have varied levels of intelligence. So individuals, intelligence will vary amongst affected individuals, but they all have, have very similar types of impairment in the comprehension and utilization of language. But this isn't a mechanical obstruction or obstacle to utilization of language. It has nothing to do with vocalizing per se or using your mouth your or, 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 your, or your vocal cords correctly, but it really has to do uh, it, it really has to do with something much more complex because it influences writing, not only speech, but it also affects comprehension and expression. So this is something to do with the way the brain is processing information in language. It's not simply a, 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 a mechanical issue having to do with how one actually creates words, and it doesn't have to do with how one comprehends them in terms of auditory signals. It has to do with how one's processing the information. Uh, and the bottom right-hand side, once again, which you won't be able to see, is an example of, uh, of, of, of a sort of a, of a verbal repetition experiment they do with unaffected and affected individuals. And when you do this repetition task with increasingly increasing numbers of syllables, as the task becomes more and more complicated, people with FOXP2 Fox mm-hmm. mutations immediately are are really effectively unable to to complete the task. Um, On the top diagram, what you see, or you may not see, is a diagram of the gene. On the top are a variety of mutations that are in foxb 2 that have been clinically uh, clinically determined, where individuals have issues with language utilization and comprehension, but once again, the interesting thing about foxb 2 is that it's evolved in very unusual ways during recent human evolution. Foxp2. So this is a little summary of its molecular evolution, and once again, I'm not going to get into the kind of the statistics behind how we determine that this is an unusual pattern of evolution. But Foxp2 is highly conserved throughout mammals and beyond. Foxp2 is actually shared across almost uh, 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 almost all eukaryotes. However, of the three nucleotide substitutions that change the Foxp2 protein in mammals. So if one looks at, in this particular diagram, we're looking at a variety of primate taxa, and we're looking at rodents Rodents as an outgroup. Of the three changes that actually impact the protein, the actual protein that the gene encodes for, two of the three of them have occurred specifically on the human lineage. And without, without going into any kind of complex statistics, that's unusual. It's unusual that a gene that has stayed the same for so long, which implies that it has a critical function, has undergone such radical changes specifically on the human lineage, in the last four, four and a half million years. It's also true that if you examine human genetic variation in the genomic locale of the gene, sort of surrounding the gene, there's strong evidence for what we call a selective sweep, approximately in the ballpark of, let's say, 200,000 years ago. So that's a selective sweep, I sort of touched on this before there's some sort of genetic variant arose in the area surrounding this gene that was quickly driven to fixation, presumably because it was selected for. So natural selection was driving this allele to fixation. And in doing that, it swept the entire region, all the linked alleles, up to fixation as well. Thus, it leaves this unusual signature in the genomes. The actual levels of polymorphism and the type of polymorphism that surround these alleles is altered. And one can actually, in fact not only determined that it's 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 non-neutral in the way it's evolved but that, it, that therefore selection has most likely impacted it where you can use various types of models to actually try to date the timing of when that selective event occurred so this is something that is uh, gives one a little bit uh, a, a little bit more hard evidence of, of what's actually going on in, in an individual who has a mutated FOXPT gene so individuals who have FOXPT mutations have reduced gray matter uh, in the frontal areas of the brain, but also in the, the BRCA's area, this key language substrate. Um, on the left-hand side, you basically see an, average, an, in, an individual without FOXP2 mutations, just your average person who, who has, no, has no impairment whatsoever, and on the left, they're, they're basically not doing any sort of task. On the right-hand side, they're having them do some sort of language exercise, and you can see that there's neural activity specific to the Broca's area. It's a, it's a small area, of sort of red and orange, that's localized. So, in individuals with FOXP2 mutations, you can see that there's dysregulation of brain activity, both in the individual, in, in both cases. So, so, these are functional abnormalities, and, and, and the functional abnormalities are they're specific to, to brain activity dysregulation within this key language substrate. So, this gene, at this point, probably is the best studied and best, know gene, best known gene, in terms of having very strong evidence for recent selective, a recent selective history. So positive selection has impacted this gene during the evolution of humans, and from a functional standpoint, on many levels there's empirical evidence that the gene's critical, critical for language utilization, something that I think we all consider kind of a key human, human gen- genetic or behavioral trait. So, uh, by way of conclusion, just, just to go over some of what I said, we now know what the human genotype is. We, we now know a little bit more about how changes in the genotype may influence our phenotype and ultimately hope to bring it full circle, not only understanding how the evolution of our genotype has affected our phenotype, but why these changes in in our genotype have been accepted sort of by the sieve of natural selection, and and that has a lot to do with what sort of traits they have conferred and and, and how they have changed us to be be the organisms that we are today, to, to what we are as human beings. So as opposed to giving a, a sort of a, a rehashing summary of what I talked about, I just put up some questions that actually may lead somewhere from it for a discussion. I'll just leave these up here. We can revisit them after everyone's had a chance to get a drink. So thank you very much.